Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. When thinking about solutions to big, complicated problems, like clean energy, have you ever asked yourself the question, but how can we actually make these large-scale changes? Well, today we're digging into the details. And stick around after the interview for an outrageous edition of Sidelining Science with Shreya Dravasala. As you may have heard in a recent episode of Got Science, support for clean, renewable energy is picking up across the country, faster than the blades of a wind turbine during a hurricane. Okay, but seriously, a few states have recently voted to pass legislation requiring that all energy in those states be generated from clean and or renewable sources by mid-century, including Hawaii, Washington State, New Mexico, and California. These victories sound great, and they are great news. But have you ever wondered about the details behind these policies? For example, how states and utilities and grid operators will go about implementing completely clean or renewable energy and phasing out natural gas and coal. How will it actually happen? To answer these questions, I thought we'd start in California to discuss the details of how clean energy will be rolled out in the Golden State. Laura Wisland is a program officer at the Heising Simons Foundation, but she used to be my colleague here at the Union of Concerned Scientists as the senior manager for our Western States Energy Program. So she knows a thing or two about what California grids and utilities have planned to meet the state's future clean energy targets. Laura joined me to discuss energy storage, how renewables drive the economy, how to be a pioneer in 100% clean energy generation, and why nothing California ever does is simple. Direct quote. Laura, thanks for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So California just passed a bill in 2018 called SB100. Can you tell me what that is? SB100 stands for Senate Bill 100, and it is a law that was enacted in 2018, and it does two major things. The first thing that it does is it accelerates our goal to put more renewable energy onto the grid. So the Renewables Portfolio Standard, or RPS, before SB100 passed was a requirement that utilities source 50% of their electricity supplies from renewables by 2030. And SB100 raised that requirement to 60% renewables by 2030. And then the bill does one additional thing, which is it requires a longer-term goal to reach 100% clean electricity by 2045. So by 2030, we will have 60% renewables on the grid, and by 2045, we are aiming to reach 100% clean electricity. Sometimes I hear 100% renewable electricity, I hear 100% clean electricity, sometimes it's carbon-free. What is the difference? Yeah, that's right. So the 100% goal that we enacted with SB100 is not 100% renewables. Renewables, at least in California, has a very specific legal definition, and it's a family of carbon-free technologies that we traditionally think of as renewable. So things like solar, wind, geothermal, types of hydropower, 
types of bioenergy. That's what is included under the RPS in California. When we talk about 100% clean or 100% carbon-free, we're of course talking about those technologies, but that term also includes other types of carbon-free generation that aren't technically considered renewable. So things like nuclear power or large hydropower. Where does California currently get its electricity mix? We get about a third of our electricity today from renewable resources, things that I just mentioned, solar, wind, geothermal. We get about another third from natural gas. And then the last third comes from a combination of large hydropower, large hydro supplies, usually between about 10 and 15% of our electricity, depending on the water year. And then the other bit comes from nuclear and market purchases from outside California, which are usually natural gas or large hydropower or coal. Does the technology currently exist to meet the goal? The technologies definitely exist to meet our 2030 requirement, reaching 60% RPS by 2030. We think that we have all the technologies in hand to reach 100% carbon-free or 100% clean by 2045, but it's a little bit less clear what that pathway looks like. And the reason is because when you start talking about really high levels of renewable energy generation technologies on the grid, you need to find ways to store that electricity because it's coming from sources like the wind and sun, so it's not coming 24-7 the way something like stored natural gas is. So there are some unique technical challenges associated with running a grid with very, very high levels of renewables. We are making a lot of progress on figuring out how to run a grid like that, and we are very confident that by 2045 we will be able to get there. How will California be able to reach this carbon-free goal? Yeah, that's a great question. So let me just break down some of the steps that we think are really important to happen. The first one, of course, is to continue bringing additional sources of renewable electricity generation on the grid. So keep doing what we've been doing, which is invest in more solar, wind, geothermal, bioenergy, all of the different types of renewable technologies. Luckily, a lot of those technologies, the cost of them has come down considerably. So that's a great thing. It's the economic choice in addition to the environmental choice. We also want to make sure that as we're bringing on more renewables, we're doing as much as we can to save electricity and be efficient with that electricity so that we can keep the cost of this clean energy transition down. Obviously, the the less we have to use electricity, the more cost effective any transition is going to be. We also want to, we're going to need to bring on additional sources of energy storage because a lot of renewable generation technologies don't generate 24-7. They generate when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. And of course, we need to be able to use electricity all the time. And so there's lots of different types of storage technologies that are going to play a huge role on the system to make sure that we have a consistent supply of electricity. We also need to do more to better align 
our electricity demand with when renewable energy sources are most abundant. So in California, we have an incredible solar generation resource. We know we're going to be bringing on a lot more solar power. Most of that electricity is going to show up for us in the daytime hours when the sun is shining. There's a lot of electricity demand we have in this state that is currently being demanded at night, but we could shift that during the day and be able to better make use of all that solar generation we're going to install. We also need to be doing more to work with our neighbors to share supplies of electricity, because if we want to operate a grid with very high levels of renewable generation, we want to be able to draw from as big of a pool of resources as possible. And so the more we can be coordinating with our neighboring states and taking advantage of their wind when our wind isn't blowing or giving another state some of our excess solar when they need the power, the more efficient and cost-effective the grid will be. So are grids sort of proprietary? Each state has its grid and do they currently cross-pollinate? So states and grid operators are not the same thing, but there's a lot of similarities between a state and a grid operator. Grid operators are really are usually regional. In California, there is one grid operator that's in charge of operating about 80% of the electricity demand in California. So in that way, we think of California and one grid operator is one and the same. But in other states, there's utilities that are their own grid operator. And in fact, in California, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, which is a very large municipally owned utility, it's its own grid operator. So sometimes states are grid operators, but sometimes they cross boundaries and are more regional. Either way, grid operators, whether they are state focused or regionally focused, always do share electricity with each other. It's just that we need to do a lot more of it and it needs to happen more dynamically. What do you see as the most challenging part of reaching the goal? Yeah, so I guess I'll just first say that, you know, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. We have a lot of people here. We consume a lot of electricity demand and no other state or even country has really attempted a transition to 100% carbon-free electricity. So we are out on the cutting edge of doing this. And so, of course, you know, one of the challenges is not being able to go to another country and just say, how'd you do it? Then we'll just replicate you. So we're, you know, we're charting the, the path in a lot of ways. But that said, there are a lot of the things that we're going to need to get to 100% carbon-free. We already have, and it's just a matter of scaling them up. So things like energy efficiency, bringing more renewables onto the system, deploying energy storage. These are all things that we have been doing, and we just need to do more. I would say one of the biggest challenges is finding ways and deploying technologies that are going to be able to provide us with carbon-free sources of power for days on end, weeks on end, when we suddenly lose our solar resource. So, and what, what we call this is long duration energy storage. So the market has really exploded for lithium ion batteries, which help us to store electricity for a matter of hours 
and that's going to be critical to this transition. But we're also going to need to find ways to store electricity for days or even weeks when a big storm comes through and the solar generation is really low for a really long time or you know, there's some other event where we're going to have to draw on our reserves. That's the piece of technology that isn't quite as developed and we're going to need to use some of that long duration energy storage when we're looking at the 2030 to 2040 timeframe. Are there any other states that are planning to, to follow in California's footsteps that you know of? Yeah, I mean, the great story is that California is is suddenly not alone in this in this path to 100% clean energy. So, you know, Washington State is working on a 100% clean bill by 2045, and it just passed one house and is headed to the next one, and is, you know, fingers crossed it'll pass. Um, New Mexico just made a commitment to 100% clean energy, which is huge. Hawaii has had a commitment in place for a while. And I know that there's some discussion about 100% clean in a couple states in the Midwest and the East Coast as well. So we're hoping this is not, you know, we're, we're just the first of many states to take this step. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual places you download podcasts. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources for this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at gotscienceucs. Or now you can connect with me directly at Colleen Gottsai. Now let's get back to our interview. Are there particular lessons learned from California that you would share with other states? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the first one is that your voice really does matter, and you need to let your legislator know that you support this transition. And, you know, coalitions of people representing all different kinds of voices and all different kinds of interests can be very, very powerful in making the case and help build momentum to get policies like this enacted. And then in terms of, you know, what these policies look like, I think it's important to not be too prescriptive. We're, you know, we're talking about 2045. It's a long way away. There's been so much change and innovation in the electricity sector. We know that more of that is going to happen. So when we write policies looking at 2045, we want to make sure they're they're general enough to make room for innovation and really support new technologies to play a role in the so future. So you need flexibility. Flexibility. In there. Don't mm-hmm. be too prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is um, is to make sure you're making investments in as many different types of clean energy solutions as possible. There's no one silver bullet, and the minute you do that, you make yourself vulnerable to you know something going wrong or it's just a less cost-effective path to go down. So as you think about the types of renewables you want to bring onto the grid, make sure they're as diverse as possible. Same with storage technologies. Same with getting creative to figure out how to better align electricity demand with renewable energy supplies. The more different tools we can bring to the table, the easier it's going to be to make this transition and the cheaper it's going to be. So, Laura... You can really feel clean energy momentum. It just feels like there's no stopping it. But what are you most excited about? 
You know, I'm really excited about this wave of smaller scale technologies that are um, available to homes and businesses to get people more involved in the clean energy transition. Decades ago, it was just about a utility making an investment in a really big utility scale power plant, and we didn't really have a choice. These days, you know, we're still going to be making investments in, in big wind farms, big solar farms, but there's also a lot of opportunity to make investments on your rooftop, put a battery in your garage, um, figure out how to better align your electricity usage towards times of the day when clean energy is most abundant. There's a lot of ways that I think people can get involved in this transition that are fairly new and exciting. I also, in terms of technology, I'm personally really excited about what offshore wind can do. There's been a pretty hearty conversation about that on the East Coast. And I think us out here on the West have been watching those conversations and trying to take notes and figure out what's been working with that and what's not. But there's a lot of potential on the West Coast and the wind resources are really strong. And I think if we can figure out how to responsibly permit some of that offshore wind, we're going to have this you know, brand new or new-ish resource that we can really use to accelerate this clean energy transition. So I don't know if you know this, but the town that I live in, in Massachusetts Hall, we have two wind turbines. We were trying for many years to be the first offshore wind farm, or not really farm, but we were trying to put four or six turbines off the um, off the coast of Hull. And it just, for our town, it was, the, the cost just, it just didn't work. But we were really invested in doing that. And um, so I'm kind of sad that we weren't the first. But I'm really happy that there's, yeah, there's a lot happening there. And it's so great to hear about communities getting really excited and taking pride oh. in local clean energy investments. Absolutely. Uh, my town is very proud of our turbines. <laughs> that's great. I love hearing that because I, you know, that's what that's what it's going to have to be. We're, I think we're going to have to look at the solar plants we build and the wind farms and take real pride in taking charge of our energy future and making investments in sources that we know are clean and are going to provide resources to our communities. So are there any challenges that you think will will put a monkey wrench in the momentum? So ironically, climate change. Climate change is the impetus for a lot of this momentum, but it's also a threat. And what I mean by that is we have an extensive network of transmission lines, you know, poles and wires across the state that are going to be necessary to make this clean energy transition. And when extreme weather events occur that are exacerbated by climate change, they threaten the stability of the grid. So, you know, wildfires can reduce the efficiency of power lines. They can make it so you can't, you know, it's too dangerous to generate a power plant. We're going to have to potentially proactively shut down sections of the grid to protect the grid. On the flip side, we're now finding that in some cases, the grid can be contributing to climate disasters. So in California, we're just coming off of a historic drought. We have hundreds of millions of dead trees in the mountains. And anytime you have a high wind, the power lines could spark a blaze, 
we're finding out that a lot of the huge fires that happened last summer in California were because of power lines. And so a lot of our attention about investments needed for the grid are being redirected away from clean energy transformation and towards how do we make the grid more climate resilient and not susceptible to causing climate disasters. And we want to make sure that if we're having a conversation about ways to update the grid so that it doesn't spark wildfires, which we know we need to have, let's figure out how to couple those investments with investments that will also help accelerate our clean energy transition. So very complex problems that you need to solve. Nobody said it was easy. (laughs) Nothing California does is ever simple. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is there anything else we need to consider when we're making this transition? The biggest part of the transition really to getting to 100% clean electricity in California is where the rubber meets the road is basically reducing our reliance on natural gas generation and figuring out how to scale down our usage of natural gas. One of of the things we really want to make sure happens as we look at what the path off natural gas looks like is making sure we're turning down generation and hopefully retiring gas plants first in that are located in the communities that have disproportionately been impacted by air pollution. We want to make sure that, you know, as we scale away from gas, we're targeting communities where people are breathing the worst air first. Are there are there bad health effects from natural gas? There, there are bad effects of natural gas. Natural gas emits nitrogen oxides, which you know causes form smog and contributes to asthma. Natural gas plants emit particulate matter, which you know causes respiratory problems, heart disease problems. So it's you know it is important to make sure we're turning down generation from the dirtiest plants because most likely in California they're also located in the communities that are most low income and you know have disproportionately borne the brunt of air pollution so helping to target the dirtiest plants first will help those communities that said the largest contributor to air pollution and pollution that harms public health comes from our transportation sector, from cars and trucks. We know that clean electricity is actually going to play a huge role in helping public health there because we're going to be electrifying cars and trucks. So we're hopefully in the near future going to be taking off the road a lot of diesel trucks, a lot of gasoline-powered cars, and instead powering them with clean electricity. And that is going to have a dramatic public health impact and improvement, not, you know, not only for everybody in the state, but particularly the communities that are bearing the brunt of living next to a highway and breathing in all the air pollution from cars and trucks. Laura, what's going to happen when everybody wants to move to California? (laughs) (laughs) Come on in. (laughs) I don't know. Housing prices are going to be even worse. No. No. (laughs) All right. Well, um, Laura, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks. This has been really fun. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, 
the latest news from an administration that's reached a shameful milestone, 100 attacks on science and counting. Our Shreya Dravasila has the story. Throw on your trucker hat and your brand name velvet sweatsuit because we're taking a trip back to the mid-2000s. Along with a nationwide fascination with Paris Hilton, there were some really bad and damaging choices being made in those days. Because this is sidelining science and not sidelining everything else, I'm going to focus on political interference in federal science, which became disturbingly commonplace with the George W. Bush presidency. Under his administration, scientists were discouraged and even censored from sharing politically unpopular findings. People who weren't qualified or who had clear conflicts of interest were hired into official scientific positions and even placed on scientific advisory committees. And decision makers who should have been factoring science and evidence into their policy decisions often just didn't even ask what the evidence was and made decisions based on special interests instead. It was in part because of these abuses of science that the Center for Science and Democracy at UCS was founded to defend the federal scientific enterprise, demand scientific integrity policies, and reinforce the value of evidence-based public policy. And it's a good thing we're still around because all of these things are happening again. And more, and faster. Before Donald Trump came along, the Bush administration launched 98 attacks on science according to our documentation. And while those attacks happened over eight years, the Trump administration has topped them in a mere two and a half years. That's right, UCS has logged more than 100 attacks on science since January 20, 2017. I know attacks on science can sound like an abstract concept, but these attacks have real consequences for everyone in the U.S., and especially for marginalized communities. To quote a blog post in Scientific American, written by my colleagues Jacob Carter, Anita Desikan, and Gretchen Goldman, quote, While the sheer number of attacks on science is shocking, what a lack of science-informed policy means for our country is even more shocking, end quote. Here is a non-exhaustive list of some of the hundred attacks and how they'll affect us. The administration has rolled back protections from exposure to dangerous materials like asbestos, meaning that more people will develop chronic diseases or even die from encountering these hazardous substances. They have ignored the overwhelming evidence that particulate matter causes respiratory diseases and has an overall negative effect on our health, and especially for people of color and those who live in low-income communities, meaning that more children are likely to suffer from asthma. The administration has ignored the scientific evidence showing that increased speed of production on factory lines in the chicken processing industry hurts people and leads to more workplace injuries, meaning that more workers are now at risk. They have banned scientists at the National Institutes for Health from using fetal tissue to do potentially life-saving research into new therapies, meaning that scientific labs could close, cutting-edge drug treatment and research could be permanently stalled, and life-saving medical treatments for things like HIV and Alzheimer's could be delayed or never come to fruition. And I have to stop there, but the other 90-plus attacks are right on our website at ucsusa.org. At UCS, we're not just counting the attacks and wishing they'd stop. We've been fighting them. With the help of our partners, members, and other allies, and with successes along the way that give us hope. 
After the Bush administration ended, and we'd recycled all those trucker hats, at UCS, we worked to make sure that scientific integrity policies were established within federal agencies. And these policies have kept some damage at bay. And today, we have the opportunity to go further. One way for all of us to fight back is to call our members of Congress and ask them to support a new bill known as the Scientific Integrity Act. If passed, this act could prevent many of the attacks on science we've seen so far, along with unforeseeable attacks from this or future administrations. Until then, we're going to stay vigilant and keep working to protect science, and all of us, from the Trump administration's attacks. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Laura Wisland, sidelining science by Shreya Dravasala, editing and music by Brian Middleton, additional editing by Omari Spears, research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS or at ColleenGotSci. Thanks, and see you next time.